Hey there, everyone. I'm Chris Kosech. Thank you so much for joining us. And of course, happy Mother's Day to you and, well, your mother. Today, we're going to revisit my interview with Dave Grohl's mom, Jenny Grohl, who wrote the 2017 memoir, From Cradle to Stage, How to Raise a Rockstar. Mrs. Grohl found herself standing alongside the stage watching her son play and wondering, where are all the other mothers? So she took it upon herself to seek them out and get their stories about raising rock stars. Along the way, she interviewed more than a dozen rock star moms, including the mothers of Kelly Clarkson, Dr. Dre, Getty Lee, Mike D, and so many more. My conversation with Mrs. Grohl went a little something like this. DNA is a miraculous thing. The day I picked up a guitar and played Deep Purple Smoke on the Water by ear, I knew that all I needed was that DNA and a whole lot of patience, something my mother clearly had an abundance of. These ears and this heart and mind were born of someone, someone who shared that same love of music and song. I was blessed with a genetic symphony waiting to perform. All it took was that spark. But beyond any biological information, there is love, and that I am most fortunate to have been given. And there's no love like a mother's love. It is life's greatest song. We're all indebted to the women who have given us life. For without them, there would be no music. Aw, Dave Girl loves his mom, which makes her the perfect guest for our Mother's Day special. Virginia Hanlon Grohl, mother of the Foo Fighters frontman, is here to discuss her book, From Cradle to Stage, Stories from the Mothers Who Rocked and Raised Rock Stars. From the highs to the lows, Jenny breaks it down as only a mother can. And we might hear from Dave once more, too. This is Text, Prose, and Rock and Roll, the only podcast dedicated to showcasing the written account of music, from band biographies to memoirs and the occasional documentary, too. We're a book club that rocks, literally. I'm Chris Kosach, and this is Track 3, featuring From Cradle to Stage by Virginia Handlin Girl. The book begins with a foreword from Dave. He talks about his musical Big Bang. He was with you in the car. What I want to know is what was your Big Bang moment in writing this book? It was a a backstage moment, actually, with um, a friend, Jill Berliner, who started the book journey with me. Uh, We started out doing the book together. It was at the New Orleans Jazz Festival. I forget what year. And David was on stage. And Jill and I were on our little folding chairs at the side of the stage, at the little backstage. And um, I said to her, I've gone to a thousand shows and I never see any of the other mothers. And I wonder why they're not all coming. This is so much fun. And, you know, to go to New Orleans and to stay in a great hotel and eat all that good food and see all those great shows. And I wondered why... Everyone wasn't doing that. And she said, well, why don't you go find them and find out? So at that moment, we said, oh, that sounds like fun. And that could be a book. And so on our way from the backstage to the trailer, we started a list of people we wanted to go meet. Oh, cool. And uh, it was that quick. And she she's a music uh, attorney. 
And so she knew a lot of people. So she could make some initial contacts that would have been really hard for me. And so that we got started. She was with me with my first two or three interviews. Then I continued on my own after that. But yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was just a moment of inspiration and then instant acting on it. Which, you know, at my age, once you're 70, I think you start thinking about age in terms of how many years from now. Like now I'm thinking, will I ever be free again? <laughs> will I ever be not, you know, not quarantined? Um, but anyway, so I I had that in mind and um, and needed to pick up the pace and work on it by myself. So I loved doing it. It was it was just a really fun project. I met the greatest women in the world and um, had a few people turned me down. A lot of people were open to it and um, and a little even, you know, sort of thinking it was risky. Most of them said they hadn't been interviewed before. And um, but it wasn't an, it wasn't interviewing. It was just conversations, really. I was so surprised by how incredible some of them were. And I had no idea how how wonderful these women how accomplished some of these women were. Um, Mike D's mom, she passed away recently, by the way. And Mm -hmm. um, she was the the first of our group. But she was, her story just amazed me. Uh, What she did on her own and what what was instinctive about art with her and her her accomplishments over the years. um, And I, I was just amazed by all that she had done. Yeah, it's true. There's a, there there are a lot of fabulous stories, and here you talk to so many people. A dozen of them. Uh, Dr. Dre's mom's uh, was amazing. Yeah. Pharrell's mom's a PhD. Uh, it, it's pretty insane. It's so I guess like great people create great kids in a way. Um, but I I love and not all the stories are happy. It wasn't it. Getty Lee's mom grew up in a. Mm-hmm. In a concentration camp, right, right, and um, and she's one of the sweetest, most cheerful women around now. She's in her nineties, and we we became really good friends. So you yeah. have kept in touch with these oh, women. Oh yes, and recently, actually, I had a a dinner party. I, I had from the very beginning when I was trying to find an agent, and later when we were trying to find a publisher. I said that one of my ideas that goes along with the book is that I wanted all of them to meet each other. And mm-hmm. so that after they had read the book, I thought I'm going to invite them all to a big dinner party. And I told all of them that I was going to do that. I promised them that I would. And it, it was a very difficult thing to pull off to bring in people from all over the world and over the country to one place at one time for one night um, to have this great dinner party. But I finally did it, and we had the best time. So we're actually, David and I are working on a documentary about the book right now, and the Mother's Dinner will be on that. So you'll get to see at some point, you'll get to see us all in action. 
tell me a little bit about Dave growing up. You talk about this in the book and how friendly and funny he always was. He hasn't really seemed to change. How do you you do that? How do you keep somebody who knows such fame on the ground with you know no ego? How did you do that? Oh, I didn't do that. Um, that's just his natural inclination. He was always, from the very beginning, as a very young child, he just liked it when everybody was happy. <laughs> so he would entertain. He would do, he would say funny things. He would do funny things. He would, um, I, he's just always been pleasant and, and fun to be around. Everybody likes to be with him. Everyone wants to be around him because he's just so much fun and or just um, listens well. And I don't know. He's just – it's just his natural inclination. It, was, it wasn't a book of lessons that I taught him on how to behave properly. He just that, – that's just his natural way. And so it's, yeah. he's, he's, he's very popular. Everybody likes to record. He's a great collaborator, and uh, people like to be with him. And um, so, yeah, he's just, it's just a natural thing. Oh, that's great. Well, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. But not everything was always hunky-dory for him either. He, he was in Scream. He starts, everything was great at first, but then it starts falling apart a little bit. He finds himself stranded in on the West Coast and, and manages to land a gig with the band called Nirvana. Now, when I was in college, uh, we got this records from Sub Pop and we were one of the first college stations to play it. And, and everybody with me knew there was something really special going on here. Did you have any inkling that there was something special here? When I first heard... Smells Like Teen Spirit. Yes, I, I did see. I heard it over the phone. And I did hear something in it. I didn't make the proclamation that the world was about to change. But huh. I did know that there was something really good there. And um, it happened so fast. It just really was a minute, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Where were you? What station? Were you in D.C. at the time? No, 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 no. I was in Northern California. I'm oh. a native Californian, and it was called oh, okay. KCSS. It's in this little little podunk college in the Central Valley, but we had a killer college radio station, and we were all calling all of our friends at the time, This obviously pre-internet, so getting on the phone with people and saying, what do you right. have? And we called a college station in Seattle. Um, we had friends up there who, who mailed the uh, single to us, and oh, we'd my. have a little music meeting, and we all sat around and went, Oh my God, what is this? And I was also working weekend overnights at a station in uh, the Central Valley outside of Modesto that was very much like the one that uh, uh, Wolfman Jack is in in uh, American Graffiti. It was just like that in the middle of nowhere. And uh, I took that to my bosses and I said, you need to listen to this. And they're like, yeah, yeah, kid, get out of here. Come back on Saturday night. <laughs> so, and I was right. <laughs> but then again, lots of people were right. We just knew. call it the talk when Dave came to you and said, um, school's not for me. I want to quit. Can you tell us that story? Yes, it was, it was not a surprise. I could 
see it coming for a long time. And, you know, the fact was our situation was different from a lot of others in that I was a teacher and David and his sister, who's three years older, and I would go off to school together every day in the car together and come home together. And they would often end up in my room several times during the day. And so we were, you know, in and out of school together. There were no secrets about how well he was doing or not doing because he was right down the hall all the time and his teachers would come and commiserate and say, why, why doesn't he do this? Why won't he turn in his homework? Why isn't he Mm -hmm. interested in this? Everyone realized how bright he was and, and everybody liked him, but he, um, could not thrive in school. He just could not. And the school was not a good space for him. So I wasn't surprised. And so when he said, I want to go tour with Scream, honestly, it seemed like such a good idea. And I think people are surprised by it, but I don't think if they'd lived through that, as I had, it was so frustrating for me because I thought, I could teach artistic kids and that I could find ways to spark interest in them. And it, it was frustrating that that I couldn't find a teacher for him that could do that. So he said he wanted to go tour Europe, and I thought, that's a better education than he's going to get just sitting through classes. Yeah. And um, so I was with my blessing that he went. Yeah, that's that's an amazing story. Not a lot of parents would have done this. Um, you have a chapter at the end of the book called What's a Mother to Do If She Spies a Spark in Her Child or if they know that they're a little bit different than their others um, and they might have a, uh, a budding artist. In this day and age, and you allude to it a little bit in the book, that a lot of people, you know, they'll say your kid has ADHD or sometimes they'll say, oh, they might be on the spectrum or whatever. When in actuality, they're they're perfectly fine. Um, so my question for you is, having been an educator, you understand child psychology, at least to a degree, and you've been in that space. If you were the queen of the world, um, what would you propose grassroots groups do and uh, uh, school uh, superintendents consider doing for kids like that who think differently, who might not benefit from the system? but they have other things to contribute. Right. What What do you think should be proposed? Oh, just a complete overhaul of the school systems. It, it exhausts me to even think about it. But there's so much wrong. There is so much bureaucracy. There's, there are so few really talented teachers and Partly that's because they don't make any money. Who would want to do that? Um, it's a pretty thankless job, and um, and the pay is terrible. You can't well, you can't survive on it. I couldn't survive as a single parent on just teaching during the daytime. I had to teach day and night and all year, and SAT prep and oh. GED and everything. I just constantly and work at Bloomingdale's and work at a carpet cleaners and so on and so forth. Um, So it's, it's difficult. So that's one thing. If teachers 
could be paid. Another thing I've, one thing about California is there's lots of, and a lot of the mothers uh, and I had this conversation, lots of different kinds of schools. And so researching to find good schools that might um, help in certain situations can, is something that, that could be done now that I didn't have the option of doing. But that's something I'd recommend now. Okay. And, um, it, but, yes, it's difficult because the things that these kids all had in common was their super high energy. And mm-hmm. that, you know, once that gets to the stage, that's what makes them superstars. And, um, but, you know, in the meantime, it's difficult. And, um, and so, and the other thing is, the other thing they had in common was that this common age of 12, when they all yes. discovered that this is what I will be, this is what I am, and there's no changing it. That was, that was really remarkable to me that that was across the board. Yes. That they all shared. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. Now, if I'm doing my, I, uh, if I'm doing my math right here, your granddaughter, Violet, yes. she was around that age when you wrote this book. Yeah. And my sister reminded me that Violet uh, has sung publicly with her dad. Yes. And so my question is, do you see it in her? Oh, absolutely. There's yeah. no question. She's already, she's already in the business. She's already, <laughs> uh, she started doing backups for him. And really? Oh, yeah. She was on stage with him about a year or two ago. I guess the first time I saw her doing backups and, um, and first of all, I told her how much I really resented it because I've been asking him to do back. If I could do backups for many, many years and he's turned me down <laughs> over and over again. You're the original singer. But I never, I never got it. So, so anyway, she started doing that with, um, with the other two women or three and, um, and now she does much more than that. Now she comes out and sings with him. Recently, they did a benefit. Somebody did a benefit in L.A., and they had um, Nirvana playing. Um, David and Chris uh, Novoselic mm-hmm. and um, Pat Smear. And then Beck played. Uh, Beck did the Kurt Cobain uh, songs and then Violet came in and did Heart Shaped Box. Oh, that's which amazing. It was truly amazing. So she's already done a number of performances and um, and when I had my mother's dinner with all the mothers, she performed for them as well. And um, Amy Winehouse's mother came to the dinner and I was sitting right next to her and um, she complimented Violet, and Violet was just so awestruck because she had admired Amy so much, and so she had a great moment. That was a great moment yeah. right there. Yeah. You know, it, it has moved on into the next generation. He's, he's the best dad in the world. 
He has three beautiful girls. They're all very different, all creative in very different ways. And um, so he's doing just fine. <laughs> and you tell this great story about him jumping on a plane from Australia and uh, oh. going to the daddy-daughter dance and then turning around going back. And I'm figuring out that's probably like 30, 40 hours that he did all of that. That's insane. Talk it about was, a great dad. It was that's- a great dad marathon. No, I don't think anyone else has come even close to anything like that. But yes. No. He did that. I, yeah. yeah that's, that's, that's what he does. And uh, it's pretty amazing. I have to ask about this dark time and I don't want to dwell on it too much because it is, it has permeated our culture for so many years and it's going to come up again after every anniversary. But April the 8th, 1994, Kurtz found in Seattle of apparent suicide. And for my generation, generation X, that was kind of our JFK moment. We all know where we were. I want to know where you were and if you heard it from your son or if you heard it on the news. I was in my classroom in uh, high school where I was teaching in Virginia, Uh and I heard it from some students who came Uh in to tell me. Yeah, so that's how I heard it. And then how do you console your child after that? Well, it was beyond everyone's – it was very difficult, and it was just hard to – decide where to be and what to say and David came home um, Mm -hmm. shortly and he was you know for him the music stopped for a really long time long time for Mm -hmm. him anyway Mm -hmm. and then eventually came back but um yeah, it was it was a real turning point in many ways. I could see I I hadn't ever heard it described as the JFK moment, but I can see how that would be for for your generation. Yeah, yeah, we all just know exactly where we were. He says in multiple interviews that he's so well grounded and he always seemed to come home back to his room to kind of get back to basics. That was his safe place. Right. I think it was just that he was in a place away from all of the questions and, and people poking around. And uh, he was able to be calm and, and just sort of restore. So fast forward, he starts Foo Fighters, it's taking off, 9-11 happens, and we're, again, the country is at a standstill, you're in Virginia, Lisa and David are in California, and they want you here. But as we all recall, if we lived through that, you couldn't get from point A to point B because all the planes were down, all the cars were rented out, all the trains were filled. Tell us a story about how you got from east to west. This is the best story ever. It really was. Well, they they called me that morning several times, and our Virginia house is less than 10 miles from the Pentagon, 
and it's right next to the beltway so you could just hear sirens and sirens and sirens um and so it was clear that there was an emergency situation and we tried several things first of all i was going to drive his suburban with my friend and um and but then she couldn't she couldn't leave virginia for some reason and and i didn't want to drive a suburban cross country by myself so he david called back and said can you be ready in two hours and i he said i think i found a bus for you and i said sure so i gathered up a few things mismatched shoes and outfits in a bag and uh, it didn't matter <laughs> and um and then in a couple hours this enormous tour bus shows up in my little cul-de-sac neighbors are all peering out the windows thinking oh dear god what is she doing now and um and he had gotten a tour bus for me that was on its way from North Carolina to New York to pick up Warren Haynes to take him to a gig in Denver that he could. This is Warren to. Haynes of Government Mule. We That's should right. Mention. That's right. Mm-hmm. And so I got on the tour bus with Barney, the driver, and Warren's manager, and then we drove to the edge of New York City where we met Warren. He lived really close to where everything happened. His apartment was close. So he was able to get himself to the edge of the city where we picked him up. And then we drove nonstop across the country to get to his Denver show. So Warren and I became really good friends (laughs) because we just talked uh, our way across the country and talked about he talked about growing up in North Carolina and his early music influences and uh, we talked about families and we just had a we we actually had a really wonderful time we would we stopped at truck stops for lunches and um, and then got back in the bus and kept going so we made it through to go to his show and uh, and I got to see an amazing performance so it was it was just it was just a great great situation and then when he then he came to LA to play a show and David and Lisa and I all went to that and at some at the end of it, he called David on stage, and they played "Keep on Rockin' in the Free World." It was pretty incredible. <laughs> so, that is so incredible. Yeah. That I I love that you described your journey so well, oh, and you. just really put me back there. I felt like I was on that trip with you. Oh my god, I'm getting chills um, <laughs> just thinking about it. But it was beautiful the way you described the grass and all the American flags. That's it's a beautiful chapter, Jenny. It really is. So I was chatting with a friend of mine who tours in a band 
on a level of Foo Fighters not too long ago um, about our kids. And I've got an 11-year-old who's very studious and in, he's into math. And my seven-year-old, who I did not think was going to be, you know, kind of a creative person at all, she wants to be a singer. She's only seven, but she's outside with her guitar singing to all the neighbors every day. It's the cutest thing ever. And this friend of mine said, how old is she? And I said, she's seven. And he said, well, you have time to fix it. I I was a little taken aback by that, but do you recommend fixing it? How do I fix it? I don't want to fix it. No, I know you don't want to fix it. Um, and anyway, you're powerless, so just forget it. Um, if this is... If it's music, if it's the music bug or whatever it is that they uh, are infected by, there's no changing it. it it's, it's there, and if you, you can try to postpone it, you can try to work classes in and around it, but if there really is that determination and that talent and that drive, I, th- I think it's, it's just, it has an energy of its own. And why would you want to? I mean, that's, first of all, it's, um, you know, not everybody gets to have a life where there's that kind of freedom, of choices that they get to make and places they get to go and, and, you know, I, I've traveled the world with Foo Fighters and Nirvana and and just gone to places I would never get to go if I'd just been uh, spending my teacher's yeah. retirement. Yeah, it's it's just it's just really been magical. So so I, I would not try to convince a child to do anything else. I know it you know, there might be some some difficulties but another thing that that surprised me about all of them is that they didn't want to have most of them didn't like the lessons that most musicians um have Uh most of them resisted any um, any of that and just wanted to do it themselves and were able to that's the other thing they were able to so um that was pretty remarkable to me Oh, that's great. Okay, um, just a couple more questions. Uh, when you so you travel all over the world, you stand on a stage or or you sit in your beach chair, as you said. Um, put us there with you when you're standing or sitting on the edge of the arena, looking out over that huge arena crowd. Mm-hmm. What is going through your mind? I love watching the audience. I love watching the movement. Watching how completely energized they get when they start moving and jumping and and swaying and i i really do love seeing that energy flow back and forth from the audience to the stage and back and so on it's just um it's really it's really a great thing to see so i i peek around the curtain at that and um and enjoy that and, um, so yeah, so you could almost be like a Where's Waldo? The next time I go to a Foo Fighters show, I'm just going to be looking for you. <laughs> well, some people do. 
actually. Really? I get caught every once in a while, right? And somebody will <laughs> wave to me and I'll wave right back. I want to leave you with the fun facts. I really hope I'm telling you this for the first time. Um, the big alternative radio station here in Los Angeles, K-Rock, it's probably the biggest alternative station in the country. And it certainly is one of the oldest. It's very, very legendary, as you probably know. Three days ago, they announced their top 106 songs of all time because they're on the 106 frequency. Do you know what the number one song was? Well, Smells Like Teen Spirit. You would think, right? No, Smells Like Teen Spirit is number five. Oh. Five, Jenny. Foo Fighters Everlong is number <gasps> one. Oh, wonderful. Wow. As it should. That's a wonderful song, isn't it? It's great. It's one of the best songs ever. From Cradle to Stage, Stories from the Mothers Who Rocked and Raised Rock Stars is available wherever you buy books. And while I read it on ebook, I recommend the audiobook for an added bonus of hearing these great stories from Dave and Virginia Hanlon Grohl themselves. And that's going to wrap up this special Mother's Day edition of Text, Prose, and Rock and Roll. Be sure to join me next time when my guest will be prolific music journalist Martin Popoff as we talk about his new book, Anthem, Rush in the 70s. It's the first in a series documenting the rise of the wildly successful Canadian group. That's next time. Right now, here's our version of the credits we call the liner notes. Text Pros and Rock and Roll was created, written, and executive produced by yours truly in association with GoTo Productions, Charlene Goto, producer. Special thanks this week goes to Laura Mazur, Eve Adderman, and WME, and of course, Virginia Hanlon Grohl. Dave Grohl appears courtesy of Hatchet Audio and was edited for brevity. Our original music is by Mike Bowman and Pictures of a Floating World. We'd love to hear from you, and yes, we do take requests. So please reach out to us. DMing us directly on Instagram is probably the best way. And please consider subscribing. We appreciate your feedback with your ratings and your comments, too. Or just visit us at our website, textprosrockandroll.com. For Text Pros and Rock and Roll, I'm Chris Kosach. Happy Mother's Day. DNA is a miraculous thing. We all carry traits of people we've never met somewhere deep within our chemistry. I'm no scientist, but I believe that my musical abilities are proof of this. There's no divine intervention here. This is flesh and blood. This is something that comes from the inside out. The day I picked up a guitar and played Deep Purple Smoke on the Water by ear, I knew that all I needed was that DNA and a whole lot of patience something my mother clearly had an abundance of. These ears and this heart and mind were born of someone, someone who shared that same love of music and song. I was blessed with a genetic symphony waiting to perform. All it took was that spark. But beyond any biological information, there is love, something that defies all science and reason. And that, I am most fortunate to have been given. It's maybe the most defining factor in anyone's life. Surely an artist's greatest muse. And there's no love like a mother's love. It is life's greatest song. We're all indebted to the women who have given us life. For without them, there would be no music. <laughs>